Well, here, uh, church, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 18, and uh, perhaps one of the most interesting parables that Jesus tells, um, in which he encourages Christians and his disciples uh, to pray on a regular basis, to have a regular and persistent habit of praying. In this text, uh, there's so much uh, to go into. There's so many themes that this text picks up uh, in the broader corpus of Scripture. Um, but one of the things this, this text really addresses is a, a human tendency which we all experience, uh, which is that we tend to not stick with things once we've started them. Uh, there is no better example of this than at the beginning of every year in January when everyone comes up with six or ten or perhaps just one resolution they plan on sticking with this year. And no matter the quality of the plan, uh, no matter the vigor of the decree, and no matter how many uh, habits, uh, trackers, or things like that you hold to keep you accountable, inevitably, the human tendency is to fall away from the habit that you've started. It is, it is simply a, a human tendency, a, a fallen human tendency, to stop doing things once they lose their excitement, once they lose their zest, once, once we don't really see the appeal anymore, we tend to stop doing it. In fact, as it relates to New Year's resolutions, a joke that is popular in the, in the gym community is that for the first two or three years of the new year, go to the gym at a different time than you would normally go because there's going to be a bunch of new people there who don't know how to use anything, they don't know gym etiquette, so just kind of make do for the first couple of weeks. But after week three, it's business as usual. You can go back to your normal routine because all of the new people will have burned out by that point, and you can kind of go on with your routine as you normally would. Does that not speak to a human tendency that we all have? And it's not just with resolutions. Uh, it's actually so with spiritual disciplines. And as this text notes, it is so also with, with prayer. You'll notice when Jesus introduces this teaching, when the text is introduced, it says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to remain persistent in prayer, or they ought always to pray. Jesus knows his disciples, God knows his people, and he knows where our weaknesses are. So when he's instructing them in his broad, masterful instruction to his people, one of the things he does is he says, I know your tendency will be to fall off in prayer. I know your tendency will be to give up on this after some time. So let me tell you a parable that will encourage you not to, which will encourage you to be persistent, which will encourage you not to lose heart. Because he's, he's talking about something we all face, which is the tendency to lose heart. We ask for something in prayer once, twice, perhaps a third time, and then never again. Or we, we, we say we'll pray for that thing for someone. We ask perhaps one time for that thing in prayer that night, and then... It, it, it flees from our memory. Now, we are not, by and large, marked by persistence in our prayers. Particularly in the Western church, we're not really marked by prayer at all. But every generation of Christians, since the foundation of the church, has struggled with prayer. And that's not news to God. He knew that on the front end, which is why he tells his disciples, hey, when you feel the pull towards despairing in prayer, towards losing heart, don't. And here's a parable which will serve to teach you and instruct you about what you ought to do instead. Don't lose heart. 
So this parable is, uh, that is the point of it, but the parable does a whole lot of things which require us to pull back for a moment and consider what a parable is, okay? A parable is not a decree of theological truth in the same way that Paul's letters are often treatises of theological truth. When Paul is writing uh, a letter, so let's say the letter to the Corinthian church, he's using tight, logical, legal arguments, using precise wording, precise language, to get his point across. So that you can slow down on every part of what Paul is arguing, you could draw a correlation to a truth of theology. A parable is not that. And you would be, you'd go astray if you think that every part of a parable must map one-to-one onto reality. A parable is a picture. It is an illustration. It is not a doctrinal treatise. And so, and, and many people today get into strange places of theology when they press the parables of Jesus too far, beyond their point. Now, Jesus already told us the point of the parable. The point is, the point is you should pray and not lose heart, okay? And now he's going to give us an illustration, but the illustration you'll notice is presuming a couple of things, and I'll just highlight them for you at, right before we work through them. You have a widow who, who needs help. She goes to a judge to give her that help, but the judge is an unrighteous and unjust man. Now, if you're thinking this is a parable that's supposed to map onto prayer, well, this widow would be, let's say, the disciples, their struggles would be the same. They go to a judge to alleviate their problems. But the person they're going to to pray is, is to God. And God is not unrighteous and unjust. Uh, he is not like this wicked judge in the text. It's a parable. It's an illustration. But when you're painting pictures about what God is like, you often have to create distortions. It's, it's inevitable to the idea of understanding and painting a picture about the infinite God. You might remember this when you were uh, in elementary school, perhaps the third or the fourth grade. Uh, you probably had a unit where you discussed the various kinds of map projections that exist out in the world because inevitably every elementary school that I've ever seen has a globe in the middle of the classroom around the teacher's desk. And at some point in time in your childhood upbringing, you learn about all these different ways you can take a three-dimensional map and turn it into a two-dimensional picture, a two-dimensional distortion of what a globe looks like. But a two-dimensional map is not a globe. And when you try to take a three-dimensional thing like a globe and map it onto a two-dimensional uh, map, you inevitably introduce distortion. The question isn't, will distortion be introduced? The question is, what kind of distortion do you accept as being a tolerable distortion? For instance, the famous world map that you all can, when you think of a world map, a two-dimensional one, the one you imagine which has Africa kind of in the middle and the United States kind of off on the left-hand side and, and Asia out on the right, that map introduces all kinds of distortions. Namely, it makes the United States look just about as big as the continent of Africa. But the United States is not even close to as big as the continent of Africa, but it's, it's part of the distortion. It's when you take something that is a three-dimensional image and you map it onto a two-dimensional picture, you have to introduce these kinds of distortions. That's what it's like when you take the infinite God who exists in reality ministering to his people and you try to paint a picture of what it is like to interact with him via prayer. You cannot perfectly map this in a theologically tight category. But that's okay as long as you know where the distortions are. Two-dimensional maps are still useful as long as you know where the distortion is. As long as you know what kind of distortion you've introduced into the map, 
you can still use that map faithfully to, to get information out of it. As long as we know where the distortion in this parable is, we can still use it to understand theology well. But I'm telling you on the front end, the, the distortion is on the judge. God is not an unrighteous or a wicked judge. He is a faithful judge. But nevertheless, you need to know that on the front end, because as we go into the parable, uh, well, I'm afraid I'm going to forget to say that on the front end. So I've told you now. So now you have it. God is a righteous judge whom we go to for all of our needs. But he's telling us this parable to encourage us, his disciples, to remain constant in prayer, persistent and not losing heart. So then, the parable. Verse 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So now you have a widow in desperate need going to a judge who Jesus has told us on the front end is not keen to give her the kind of help that she is looking for. He's told us on the front end, this is not the kind of judge you'd go to for help. This is the kind of judge who's probably not going to hear you out and who's going to want to not be bothered. So what hope does the widow have of being heard? Except that the widow doesn't just ask one time. Because verse 4 tells us that for a while he refused but afterward, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect man, yet it is because of this widow who keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? So the parable is short. It's two verses long. It introduces uh, drama and immediately resolves that drama. But it, it paints a picture in our minds of how we ought to be in our prayers. The text here tells us that as Christians, as people who follow God, we ought to be dogged, persistent, unfailing, unrelenting in our prayers. This ought to mark Christian prayer more so than anything else. Often when we think about prayer, we think about prayer as something that we can do if we have the right theological categories for it. If we understand perfectly what's going on, we can pray. Uh, we, we, when we think about prayer, sometimes we think about the environment that prayer is in. Sometimes we think about prayer in terms of length, that what really marks prayer is how long you go for. But Jesus is saying, here's an attribute of prayer that we ought to consider as his disciples an ongoingness to prayer, a prayer that does not give up at the first sign of it not being answered. Now, remember, he's telling us this because he knows who we are. He knows his disciples, and he knows that no matter how strongly we start in asking God for something, it is inevitable that we reach the point where we forget to ask, or we stop asking, or we despair of asking. He knows his people. He knows us well. And who, who's been walking with the Lord for any amount of time tonight, could not relate to the reality that when you first begin to pray for something vigorously, you shortly thereafter fall off from praying for such a thing. Perhaps there is a great need in your life, uh, healing of a loved one who is sick and failing health, and you begin firmly in praying for their welfare, for their benefit, for their healing by God's grace, and maybe a month goes by, two months go by, 
and a year goes by, not much has changed, and you have begun to despair and think, well, what is the use of praying for this anymore? Perhaps I should just give it up. Or perhaps you don't even have that as a conscious thought, you just do give it up. Or perhaps it is a loved one who you've grown up with for your whole life, who you know knows the gospel and yet does not believe the gospel, and you love them and you desire them to know the Lord, and you pray for their salvation day and night until one day you just forget to. Because for three years the prayer has gone unanswered, so why would it be answered tomorrow? And, and so marks the human condition, the, the disciples' condition, to falter in our discipline of prayer. Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't falter. And look at the widow who can teach us about not faltering because she has no shot of justice. She has no shot that this judge is going to give her what she wants. The text makes clear this judge is not the kind of person who's giving handouts to widows. In a society where widows are the ones who you can legally extort, you can take them to court, you can, you can take their stuff from them, they are, they're not going to be the favored party in a lawsuit or in, a, in, in that kind of a legal setting. So she goes in a disadvantaged state to a judge who is not going to go out of his way to do anything besides make his own workload lighter. So she has no shot. This judge is not going to help her out. But she keeps coming. She goes to him relentlessly to the point where he says, it would have been easier for me to solve this widow's problem, to bend over backwards and resolve her legal squabbles, and then she'll be done with me. And the, and the widow gets justice done. He, this judge does justice for the widow simply because she is relentless. Now, Christian, that is so different from how you approach your father. And yet, you can learn so much from the widow's approach to the judge. Because while we have a guarantee of God hearing us, of God desiring to answer our prayers, of God loving his people and desiring what's best for them, yet we can learn from the widow in her persistence in her unrelenting pursuit of justice. And we should know that whereas the widow creates an opportunity for her justice to be had, we as Christians should too be persistent to that end, to continue in prayer until our prayers are answered. Because we actually have a guarantee from Jesus in this text, verse 6, or sorry, verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Answer, yes. God will, of course, give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. And so God is the one who not only asks us to come to him day and night, but he also has a heart posture to answer our prayers that we ask of him on a regular basis. So what good reason do we have of despairing in our prayers, save for well, our regular experience of life where we pray and we don't see any change in the world. Or we pray and we don't see any change in the heart of the one who we're sharing the gospel with. Or we pray and we don't see any change in the health of our family member. And so we give up. We despair. We stop. This is the ongoing experience of the Christian. But we are encouraged not to do that, not to take that path. One of the things that this text brings up is the reality that God loves his people 
and he loves to hear and respond to their prayers. And it's really not, there's no, really no correlation between our persistence and God's answering of our prayers. Because, for instance, you can take the Exodus event, where as soon as God's people begin to groan under the yoke of slavery, God remembers their people, his people, remembers his covenant with Abraham, and sends Moses to rescue them. There's no recorded persistent prayer in that event that, that leads us to believe the Israelites prayed and asked God to help them, and then he responds. God actually goes out of his way, when his people aren't really praying to him, to go and rescue them from their oppression. Now that's one example in the Old Testament of a myriad of examples of God pursuing his people, going out of his way to love them. And here in the text, we are encouraged to trust in God's character enough to go to him in a doggedly and persistent kind of way so that we do not despair. What this text helps address is the false notion that emotions are a prerequisite for spirituality. That your desire to pray is a prerequisite towards faithful prayer. It is often the case where we think, th- we think to ourselves, well, this morning, I don't, I don't feel like praying to God. And I don't want to be a Pharisee in my actions, so I just won't pray. Uh, because I don't feel like it. Uh, this widow... <laughs> has no, could you imagine going into the judge and and having any kind of hopeful expectation of a good outcome? And yet she goes persistently day in and day out. And yet as Christians, we who have an opportunity for a hopeful outcome in prayer will falter in, in praying to our God. The mark of mature Christian spirituality is not that you always feel emotionally ready to pray, but it's that you pray regardless of how emotionally ready you feel to pray. You pray regardless of how prayerful you feel in the moment. You pray regardless of how hopeful you feel the outcome is at the end of that prayer. You pray anyway. That is a mark of Christian maturity. It is what this widow models for us in the text. She's going to this judge anyway. Whether she feels hopeful or not, to whom else can she go in her request for justice? Christian, there's no one else who you can ask to solve your problem besides God Almighty. He's the only one who's listening. He's the only one who's powerful to save. So even suppose you pray for a number of months and you don't see an answer to prayer. Well, to whom else would you turn? There is no one else to turn to. God is the only judge of all the earth. He's the only creator over all things. He's the only one to pray to. So he's the only one you should continue to pray to. God is, uh, he is in some sense analogous to this judge in that he's the only solution that we have. He's the only one we can go to in our prayers. He's the only one who can even hear us and, and respond. So we see then in the text that this widow is in some sense a, a model to us of what it is to pray. But something that I've kind of glossed over, you might have picked it up in the text already. The issue of the widow's prayer is not some fleeting request for something she wants that she doesn't have, uh, in, in the sense that it's something that's optional in her life. Her request for prayer strikes at the very core of God's character, namely, it's an issue of justice. It's an issue of injustice being done and the widow seeking justice on her own behalf. You'll notice in the text, verse 3, the widow's request to the judge, give me justice against my adversary, 
Verse 5, the, justice, or the judge thinking, he says, even though she keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down. Verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him? And then verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. The issue in the text, the issue that's being brought forth, is an issue of justice, which means it's an issue of God's character. God is a just judge who rules the world in a just way. And so when his people come to him crying about injustice, we have a a strong case. Because it's not rooted in our feelings or our desires. It's rooted in God's character. You think about Abraham when he's interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? Yes, he will. He will do what is right. So we have, in this widow's case, an issue of justice. Now, the text does not tell us what exactly her problem is or who her accuser is because it's, it's a peripheral detail. You can kind of plug and play any number of scenarios that would suffice and would supply because she's a, she's a model for disciples to know that when issues of justice arise, they can go persistently in prayer to their God. This highlights something we've already talked about in Luke's Gospel, but when God commands his people to pray, he always gives them in some sense, a guideline of how to pray, what to pray for. And we're never praying for something that's not on God's radar. When we as Christians pray to God, we're asking him to do things he's already told us it's in his desire and heart posture to do for us. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, it is because God's the kind of God who wants to give to his people daily provisions. When we, when this widow goes and and she says, I need justice, Well, the text here says, is it not God the kind of God who loves to give justice? We're praying right in line with God's character when we pray. And as as Christians, especially in the West today, we think about this and, and we think, well, justice is often not something I'm praying for on a regular basis. I I don't regularly find myself praying for issues of justice. And and that just shows you. I think, Christian, how, how atypical, how abnormal the Western Christian experience is compared to church history, compared to the rest of the world. Christians, for all of history and across the globe, are regularly, and we might say persistently, the victims of injustice being done against them. You can read a book like Fox's Book of Christian Martyrs, and you can see just how widespread such testimony is that Christians have long suffered under the thumb of those who hate them and despise their Lord. John 15, Jesus tells us that don't be shocked when the world hates you. It already hated me on the front end. We, we live as a, as a people who's often under the thumb of persecution, and yet in the West we are so far removed from that that justice has almost removed itself entirely from our prayer vocabulary where we get squeamish when we read psalms that cry out for God to bring justice for his people. Those would be the imprecatory psalms, which in the West today, it's even debated, are those useful for us anymore, given that we're not really Israel? But I'm not going to go to the imprecatory psalms, just to the New Testament in Revelation chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me. In Revelation chapter 6, I'll be looking at verse 9 of the text. Verse 
God has always been concerned with justice, and he remains so to this day. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. These would be martyrs. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In the New Testament, at the end of the canon, Revelation, we have an example of God's people, the martyrs of the faith, calling to God for, for justice. That is not in contradiction with, for example, Stephen, when he is being stoned to death, who says, Father, I pray that you would forgive them. Or Jesus on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are not terms that are in contradiction with one another. Because justice must be done by God's character. We can always pray for justice. And the, now the question is, do people who have committed sin suffer justice in their own bodies? Or does Christ stand on their behalf as their substitute? This is the question of justice that every prayer of justice introduces. Because if we were to pray for justice to always be done as Christians, one of the things we're doing is we're putting all non-Christians essentially under the gun of God's judgment. And the means of escape has always been the same, which is to take the, the justice of God, his wrath aimed at a sinner, and put it upon Christ who bears that burden faithfully. When, when Christ is crucified on the cross, he's, he's not just dying at the hands of men. He, he's dealing with the issue of God's justice and forgiveness. Because God in the cross is both perfectly just in his dealing with sin and able then to extend forgiveness to those who are found within Christ under his protection. So in Revelation, when we read those, those uh, saints crying out for justice to be done on the earth, it does not mean that God must kill those who kill them in order for justice to be done. God could also convert those who have killed them and justice would be done. Because Christ has then stood in their place, on their behalf, bearing their guilt and shame. This is what we must understand today. The language of justice in the text of Scripture leaves us either with sinners suffering for their own sin or Christ's suffering for their sin. But there is no category where sinners don't suffer and Christ isn't their Savior, and there's this now new category where God just sweeps sin under the rug. That is not a possibility. And only, only so far removed from warfare and injustice as we are in the West would we even consider, well, does God really need to be so just? People who have never experienced hardship in their life can say that kind of thing. But, but no one who's experienced suffering at the hands of an oppressor could say that kind of a thing. God's justice is, is actually paramount to his character if you go outside of the Western church and you go to countries which have seen firsthand the persecution of Christians and you know their suffering, you know their affliction, or as in the imprecatory Psalms case, the Jewish people who were slaughtered and their wives were cut open and children dashed against rocks, when they cry for justice, you can, you can only understand that need for justice in some sense if you, you know what it is like to suffer in that way. And the only people who question the demand for justice are, are frankly uh, 
Western PhD theologians who've never seen warfare a day in their life, who sit back and ponder the character of God and say, well, God, this is just Jewish thinking about who God is. This is not really what God is like. God is a God of justice. And justice will be done either on sinners or upon the cross in Christ. Which means there's, there's two ways for justice to be done for sinners. One is conversion of the lost unto Christ. Or also the uh, reality of uh, eternal suffering in hell. Those are historically the, the two ways that justice is to be done. But notice uh, one more piece in the text that's, that's worth noting on the issue of justice is that in order for justice to, in some sense, count, it must be done. You'll notice the text there says, he will give justice to them speedily. Uh, some of your translations might render that a little differently. And now you might be thinking, well, if justice is to be done speedily, and God does not mete out his justice, let's say, within five minutes of the sin occurring in this lifetime, uh, surely that does not fit the definition of speedily. Uh, perhaps you've had uh, an argument with a friend or a significant other. Uh, I'll be there soon, you say. And, uh, well, the word soon should mean, you know, maybe within five, ten minutes, depending on how you define it, maybe three hours from now. <laughs> but sometimes there's, a, there's an expectation of what the term must mean, and if that definition isn't quite met, we think it doesn't, it doesn't fit the requirement, right? Justice can be done speedily, and justice will be done speedily. But from a human time perspective, the unfolding of justice, uh, the term speedily doesn't quite capture all of what justice uh, entails. Uh, you might think of a term more like justice will be done assuredly, or justice will be, will be done for certain. There, there is no option for justice not to be done. What the guarantee here is for saints is that they will receive justice either in this life or in the life to come. They will be vindicated. Their, their blood will be avenged. And all that is unjust and wrong in the world will be made right. And it will be, so it will be done assuredly in this way. Justice must be done. It must, must be done in finality. And, and yet this idea of justice being done quickly and God's patience for sinners to give opportunity for repentance often end up bumping into each other in the text of Scripture. And one of the things we must recognize, even when we pray for justice to be done, is we must recognize that we often don't know how God is meeting out his justice or what he has prepared in the future for this person in their life or their uh, future. And so when we pray for God to bring justice, we also rest our prayers there, knowing for certain that it will be done. However it shakes out, we trust it to God's character. And this, this assurance that justice will be done goes back to the very first thing that Jesus says in the parable, that they should always pray and not lose heart. Because if you have a guarantee that your prayer for justice will be answered well then, why would you ever stop praying and losing heart? You wouldn't. The people who lose heart are the, are the people who think that this is not making a difference anymore and nothing's going to change. As Christians, we are people with hope. We have hope, and so we ought to live and pray as people with hope. Meaning, even when we don't feel like it, we, we pray and we ask God to avenge his people who are suffering in the world. Now, if, you th if you're thinking... 
I don't even know anyone who's suffering in that kind of way, martyrdom. Uh, you need to read Christian history to understand just the precedent for martyrdom in the, in the Christian faith. But also just familiarize yourself with all of what's happening in the world and how Christians are suffering, for example, on the subcontinent, on Africa, in the, in the Western uh, parts of the country, or as they are suffering under the thumb of the communist regime in China, or even as Christians are suffering under uh, Islamic threats of uh, terrorism and where families are being slaughtered. To familiarize yourself with the suffering of Christians in the world will unite you to something bigger than yourself and will actually give you substance to pray for when you cry out to God for justice to be done. What I mean to say is, pray for something bigger than yourself because you're part of a family which is actually bigger than yourself. As God says, you are part of his body, which the head is Christ. But uh, when we suffer as a body, as a Christian church, we suffer as one in solidarity with one another, which means that's not actually divided based on a couple thousand miles away from each other. We should suffer, in some sense, with Christians around the world in the way that they suffer, praying for justice to be done and, and really get out of our bubbles that we live in often in the West, where we are isolated from suffering, isolated from injustice, isolated from the concerns of the world. And then we conclude, rather shamefully, I have nothing to pray for. I have all my needs met. I have food on the table. I have a good savings account. I've got a good job. I don't really have any need to pray. Well, ask a couple people in your church about what's going on in their life, and you'll have something to pray for. And then go and look about how Christians suffer in the world, and you'll have much more to pray for. And then consider all of the lost in the world, and you'll have an infinite amount of things to pray for. And then you will realize when this text says you should pray and not lose heart, it's because you're going to feel like losing heart after you pray for months upon months upon months for the same thing, seeing similar results. And you'll think, well, maybe I should stop praying because it's not making a difference. And then you should be reminded of the fact that when the widow who, saw, who went to an unjust judge got her justice, Christians have an even stronger assurance that justice will be done because they go to a righteous judge who's actually all-powerful to make sure justice can be meted out in the end. And then here comes the question of the text, rather a striking question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You might be saying, well, this, this whole parable, Jesus, you were talking about prayer, you are talking about justice, and now you're talking about faith? What do these things have, how do these things fit together? Jesus is saying, when, the, when he comes, will he find prayerfulness on the earth? Will, will he find a Christian community, a Christian people who still prays to him to do justice? Will he find, let's say, such a kind of faith? If you like, this widow in the parable is a, a picture of faith. And in his conclusion, his exhortation to the disciples, he asks them the question, when I come back, will I find such faith on the earth? You can think about the... the the Gentile who, who says to the Lord, Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief. And God, uh, Jesus points out about the faith of the man, which is to be admired and to be uh, promoted. Here it is, a widow, an example of faith. Will Jesus, when he come, find faith upon the earth? Now, you don't need to answer that question, let's say, first at a uh, Western church problem of prayerlessness. Really, we should, we should make our own bed first before we start trying to solve the world's problems. When, when you examine your life, Christian, 
would you say that it is marked by a kind of dogged, persistent prayerfulness? And if not, don't despair, but resolve to pray as Christ invites you to pray. Because it is, in some sense, a model of faith. Now, when I mentioned earlier at the beginning of, of, this, of this time the idea of New Year's resolutions, one of the things that everyone will say when you're forming a new habit or some kind of resolution, the very thing that you should not do is think, unless it comes out perfect the first time I do it, uh, I, I got to have it all perfect and then I can start. I got to have the perfect workout plan, the perfect diet, the perfect all this, and then I can do it and then the habit will stick. Many, many people say, make an incremental change in what you do. Make an incremental change in your prayer. If you have no habit of praying, let's say, for even the needs of your own community, your own church body, make it a habit to just pick one person or one need who you'll pray for for 30 seconds a day, just persistently, whenever it comes to your mind. And when you have done that consistently for some time, add and add and add and grow and mature and blossom your habit of prayer into something uh, which we could say would be then a model to other Christians, where you could then, when you're discipling someone, say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Not that you are, a, let's say, a paragon or an example of how you ought to pray, but that you know all the weakness and failings of your own flesh. You know all your own uh, immaturities and inconsistencies in prayer. Who better to help someone else pray than someone who has struggled with all those same things and has yet overcome by God's grace and persistence? God invites his people to be marked by prayer, a prayerful people, the kind of people who treat him as though he actually rules in heaven. And here's really the, the issue of it. When we don't pray, as Christians, one of the things we are, we are doing is we are working in the world as though we are functionally atheistic. Meaning we live and move and interact in this world as people who don't actually believe there's a God in heaven. We just have a spiritual morality which guides us in this world. But Christianity is far more than that. We, we do have a God who rules over heaven, who can move angels and move mountains and, well, frankly, change anything within his creation as he desires. And so we ought to pray as though those were all true things because they are all true things. And one of the things that I think marks the lifeless nature of the Western Christian church is not first and foremost doctrinal problems, because to be honest, the church in Asia and Africa is not exactly writing theological textbooks on all kinds of doctrinal issues. They're struggling for survival. But what, what makes them vibrant is the fact that they read the word and they pray. They don't need to be systematic theologians. I'm not saying that that would not be a good outcome at the end, but systematic theology does not make a mature Christian prayerful discipline and love of God's word makes a mature Christian. You, you don't have to go to seminary to be a mature Christian, but, but you do have to pray. You do have to do these things which are exhorted in the text. And if you want to take a step today that's going to lead to maturity 30 years from now in your Christian walk, there is no better step than the habit of prayer. There are few things that you could do that will, in 30 years from now, be something that you will not regret. Right? And many people will say there's good habits you can pick up along the way. And there are many good things you can add on top of your prayer habit. But as Christians, we ought to be marked by people who pray. And not just pray for whatever comes to our mind, but frankly, we should have things that we pray for intentionally so that we can know when God is answering prayer and when he's not. 
in the, in the text tonight, the issue is an issue of justice. So when we pray, we might say that justice ought to be something we are praying for on a regular basis. But when Jesus gives his disciples their prayer, he gives them that prayer as, a, as a, really a, a skeleton, a, a backbone of how we ought to pray. There's all kinds of things in that prayer that we can pray for on a regular basis. My, my point is simply, you have lots of examples, lots of starting places, lots of ways to enter the prayer life as a Christian. And not only are you encouraged to do so, you're invited to do so, you are spurred on by the Spirit to do so. And it will lead to Christian maturity in a way that few other things that you could adopt today will. There is a kind of vibrancy that prayer brings to your Christian walk where, yeah, you might not wake up every morning ready to pray, but that won't actually stop you from praying. The kind of vibrancy that says, even if I don't feel like it, I'm going to pray anyway. But that's a mature kind of spiritual discipline. That's a more mature prayer habit. That's a more mature saint. We would say in the same way that the person who's able to love someone else despite how they feel is a more mature demonstration of love than the person who only loves those who they feel like loving. We would say across the board, it is obviously better to want to love someone and then, and then to show love to them. But so too it is true that you shouldn't just disrespect someone just because you don't feel in this moment like loving or respecting them. Every marriage that has ever survived beyond five minutes has to recognize the fact that you have to, as a baseline for your love, love some t- someone even when you don't exactly feel like loving them in the moment. And we would say more mature love is demonstrated when you love even though you don't feel like it. So it is with prayer. It is a more mature discipline to pray even when you don't feel like it. It is a more mature demonstration of spiritual vibrancy and vitality. So Christian, do away with the idea, dispel the myth that vibrancy and emotional highs are what should be the backbone of your spiritual walk, particularly as it relates to prayer. Vibrancy and emotional highs are not what should mark your prayer life, but rather, as we see here in the text, persistence. Day in and day out, unfaltering, step-by-step prayer. As Jesus says, and he summarizes it no, no better, no better place to stop, he told them a parable to this effect, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Let's pray. God, you are almighty, the king of the ages, and yet you invite your people to relate to you through prayer. You invite us to enter into the very throne room of grace, on our knees, pleading for justice, for our needs, for the needs of our loved ones. And Lord, you invite us to that. You encourage us to that end. You give us every reason under heaven to pray. And so, Lord, would you just please, by your grace, make us a prayerful people. Make us a people who prays day in and day out regardless of circumstance, feeling, how the week has been going. And that that would lead to us being mature, vibrant saints who pray as you tell us here we ought to pray. We know you are a God who will answer every prayer. We trust that. And even when our faith is weak, not to see that perfectly, we ask that you would help our weak faith in that moment. We pray this all in your loving name. Amen.